Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Even though restrictions are loosening in New England, uncertainties about how to avoid spreading COVID-19 have not gone away. Like this question, when will it be safe to visit my parents? I went to visit my elderly parents yesterday and I wore a mask and I sat six feet apart from them and we had a really nice visit. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. Two experts answer listener questions about going out, but staying safe. And immigrant workers on Vermont's dairy farms are considered essential, but they're not getting coronavirus aid from the government. It's up to the state to prove it when we say that these folks are, quote, essential. Plus, the coronavirus is pushing some people to leave cities and move to more rural spots, like one guy who bought property sight unseen. He's never been there. And there, there are numerous examples of that. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. I don't know about you guys, but since restrictions have been loosened in Massachusetts, where I live, I'm finding it even more difficult to figure out what's the safe or quote-unquote right way to spend time with people during the pandemic. Before, I didn't have to think about saying no. There was a clear stay-at-home advisory, and everyone was going wild with their stay-home, stay-safe posts on Instagram. But now that more people are venturing out, there are questions about wearing masks, no masks, where you've been or who you've come in contact with. To help tackle this uncertainty around social distancing, WGBH Radio's Gabriela Emanuel has answers to some of the common questions people have been asking right now. In an effort to get a bit more certainty in this uncertain time, we gathered questions from the public and posed them to two medical experts. I'm uh, Dr. Daniel Karitskis. I'm chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital. My name is David Brown. I'm the chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. The questions we asked Karitskis and Brown fell into three broad categories. First, all sorts of questions about outdoor activities. Here is Delia Hagen of Somerville. When I'm walking on the sidewalks in my town, I'm never within six feet of anyone else, but I often wonder about people walking ahead of me. Is it possible for me to get COVID from walking behind them? Brown says it's unlikely. He says there are three big things to remember. Being outside is way better than being inside. Wear your mask and keep your six-foot bubble. Even if you're walking at a distance with friends, both experts gave a green light. But when it came to playdates with kids, they were skeptical. Well, my kids are grown, but when they were small, I would have had a hard time keeping them six feet apart from their friends. So I'm not sure how that is going to work. And Brown adds, parents shouldn't get their hopes up about their kids hitting playgrounds anytime soon, since often the surfaces are metal, and that's one material where the virus can live for a while. 
But on a brighter note, he says the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have said the virus doesn't live in or transfer through pools. Now, the second category, traveling during a pandemic, especially as the weather warms up. Here's Alexis Williams-Torrey of Arlington. I was wondering if it would be safe or relatively safe to rent an Airbnb or similar vacation rental and to disinfect it when you arrived, open windows, etc. It probably would be, actually. Koritskis says the virus doesn't survive that long on surfaces. A few days with nobody around should be plenty. But he says where this Airbnb is located matters. If you're going from Massachusetts, where the rates are on the decline, to uh, Georgia or Minnesota, where the rates are on the upswing, uh, that may not be uh, the greatest thing to do. And assuming this Airbnb is a drive and not a flight away, bathroom stops may be an issue. You have to be extra, extra careful to wash your hands with soap. The final category, seeing other people and merging social groups. Victoria Placencia is staying in Cambridge, but her family is in Norwood. And I want to know when is it going to be safe to go visit my parents. That's a question Brown had to ask himself, too. His answer? I went to visit my elderly parents yesterday, and I wore a mask, and I sat six feet apart from them, and we had a really nice visit. But if you want to bring someone new into your inner circle, meaning no mask and no distancing, that's harder. Both experts say it's definitely a good idea for both parties to do a 14-day quarantine. But they warn even then the risks are not zero, since almost all of us come into contact with others, whether grocery shopping or pumping gas. And as an emergency room doctor, Brown has one other piece of advice for those worried about catching the novel coronavirus. Don't avoid the hospital if something else is wrong. Because the mortality rate for an individual with COVID is actually quite low. The mortality rate for an individual with an untreated stroke or an untreated heart attack or an untreated intra-abdominal infection is not low. So he says, feel free to go to an Airbnb, but also take that trip to the ER if you need to. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Office buildings, shuttered because of the coronavirus outbreak, are beginning to reopen, but with a lot fewer workers. And getting back to business does not mean business as usual. WBUR's Callum Borshers took a tour of the Cambridge Innovation Center in Massachusetts, which is taking some creative measures in an effort to keep people healthy as they return to the office. So here we are in One Broadway, the uh, headquarters for CIC. Cambridge Innovation Center founder Tim Rowe welcomes me to his company's flagship office. Hundreds of Kendall Square startups rent space here. I visited many times, but never like this. The way we came in was different than usual, right? We had this new wave sensor. To yeah, get and I'll in. demonstrate that. If you walk over, I'm going to wave my hand. Instead of pulling a handle, Roe waves at a sensor beside the front door, and it opens. One of Roe's chief objectives is to reduce surfaces that everyone touches, things like door handles and elevator buttons, which explains the small, individually wrapped gadget waiting for me in the lobby. So um, so flip that open. This top cap opens up. There you go. It resembles a flip-top lighter, but instead of a flame inside, there's a rubber tip I can use in place of my finger to press buttons and tap shared computer screens. And the cap 
holds a sponge. Put a squeegee of um, hand sanitizer on the sponge in there. Between uses, the tip gets a coating of sanitizer from the sponge. So whenever I touch something with this little gizmo... You're now part of the cleaning regimen as a user. That's key in a building that could see hundreds of workers every day, even as the state caps capacity at 25%. Next, Roe walks me through a temperature scanner. Anyone over 100.4 gets sent home. I'm getting 98.4. That's in the normal range, so I'm cleared to take an elevator up to the shared workspace. Upstairs, doors open with foot or forearm poles. The entrepreneurs who work here all wear masks and can get all the way to their desk chairs, spaced at least six feet apart, of course, without touching any shared surfaces with their hands. It's reassuring in one way, but a little unnerving in another. The Cambridge Innovation Center was a pioneer of the co-working movement, which is all about bumping into people and sharing ideas. So there's a cultural question I just have to ask. How do you maintain sort of the spirit of what CIC has always been about? I mean, a big part of the attraction is you come here for the specific purpose of rubbing elbows with your fellow entrepreneurs and being in close proximity. And and now you're being told you need to stay away from each other. Yeah, no, I think that that's true. But let's remember the period of time we're talking about. You know, this is a very unique period of time. And I think for people to pull back and focus on, you know, digital and video-based meetings and some meetings are in person, but with you know safe spacing like you and I are right now, yeah. we think that works. At least it'll have to do for now. Less than half a mile from where we're standing, the biotechnology company Moderna is racing toward a potential coronavirus vaccine. Roe is optimistic that effort, or one of the dozens like it, will succeed. So this normally high-touch office can go back to handshakes and packed networking nights. But for now, the goal here, and in many other offices, is to touch as little as possible. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Callum Borshers. We go now to Maine's northern border with Canada, where communities on either side are closely connected, historically, culturally, economically. But the COVID-19 pandemic has temporarily severed that connection, as the U.S. and Canada have suspended non-essential travel across the border. Maine Public Radio's Robbie Feinberg visited one border town to see how the closure is affecting people's lives and their livelihoods. Gary Terrio hops off his motorcycle and walks into the Madawaska Tasty Freeze, a roadside ice cream and takeout stand just a short hop from the Canadian border. Do you have a number or something? Yeah. Seven. As he waits for his milkshake, Terrio peers across the St. John River towards Edmonston, New Brunswick, less than a mile away. He says these communities have long been connected by their mutually dependent economies and shared heritage. Well, a good example is my mother was born in Edmonston, which is right across the border. My father was born in Van Buren, and so half my relatives are over there, and the other half are over here. So there's a lot of back and forth, uh, visiting aunts, uncles, grandparents. There was always a back and forth on, on the border. Over the past half century, Madawaska has seen its population gradually diminish as the local paper mill has been forced to lay off workers. But local residents say the town has maintained a symbiotic relationship with Edmonston. Americans go across to see family, get a haircut, or gamble at the casino. Canadians, meanwhile, often come over for cheaper gas and milk, then stay and visit local shops and restaurants. But that all came to a halt two months ago, when the U.S. and Canada blocked non-essential travel across the border, and have since extended the restrictions until at least late June. 
And today, the normally steady flow of cars passing along the Madawaska-Edmonston International Bridge has slowed to a trickle. Terrio says he's still allowed to go across at times to buy materials for his garage door business. But other visits, to see family, for example, are prohibited. So I was crossing every day. I was residing there and working here. And then when the decision came that they were closing the borders, because my business is probably 95% in the States, we made the decision at that time to stay here until things can iron themselves out. It, you know, we're frustrated on one hand, but on the other hand, you always have to consider for the safety purpose, we've got to do what we have to do, you know. Well, you know, the struggle is, is real, obviously, that we see them struggling. We hear of it. Gary Picard is the Madawaska town manager. He says the border restrictions have had a big impact on local shops and stores, as many rely on Canadian visitors for a large chunk of their sales. One could almost assume that the revenue from, from Canada is basically been wiped out here during this, this period. Is that it, right? Uh, 173. The impact has been particularly acute at gas stations and convenience stores. Less than a mile from the local border crossing, Tim Lossier has run Bob's service center with his sister for close to 30 years. Probably 60% of my business is Canadians. So when they closed the bridge down, on, I think it was like the 19th of March, I mean, we, we let our workers go. So it's just my sister and I working the store now. And it's been like that for two months. And it looks like it's going to be like that for another month. And I mean, I've lost probably 2,500 people coming through the door a week. Lozier says he understands the reasons behind the border restrictions, but he worries that even if the border does reopen soon, some of his regular shoppers will still be hesitant to cross. And even when they do come back, I mean, I don't think we're going to get all our, our customers back because they'll be more strict at the border and and people are going to be scared to come over here or, you know, I, I don't think we're going to, you know, it'll be back to normal. It might take five or six years, I think. And while some in Madawaska say federal and state restrictions are important to protect public health during the pandemic, others would like to see them loosened even more quickly. Business owner Vincent Fralichardi says he hasn't seen his wife and cat for nearly three months because of the border closures. And with reported cases of COVID-19 being so low in both Aroostook County and New Brunswick, he believes it's time to allow more visitors to frequent the area safely. It, it's going to be people from Boston area, people from outside the area, uh, people from Canada coming in for a week or whatever to go, you know, do what they want to do, the hotels and stuff like that. So it's hard. We need to tap into the people outside the state of Maine to bring the resources in to keep our way of life going. Federal officials have said the border will remain closed to non-essential travel until at least June 21st. But administrators in Madawaska have taken a few steps that they're hoping will help local businesses pay their bills in the meantime. In April, the town partnered with the local Chamber of Commerce to sell $60,000 worth of gift cards good at certain local businesses affected by the pandemic. Chamber Director Sharon Boucher says residents only had to pay for half the value of each card, with the town paying the other half. Gives them that money in hand to be able to pay the bills that are coming in while they're not open. Is it going to cover all their bills? No. But it's it helps. Boucher says the first round of certificates went on sale at 8 a.m. and were snatched up in just a few hours, causing some chaos at the chamber. Calls were dropping because there was just too much activity and people were getting frustrated and angry. So we had people 
outside at the door wanting to come in, putting their orders in the mailbox. And while the gift card initiative was chaotic at first, Boucher says the response was encouraging. She says the overwhelming support was yet another sign that in the face of difficult challenges, the people and businesses of Madawaska are resilient and will fight to stay afloat. We will come out of this okay. Yeah, we're going to hurt for a little while, but we're going to come out of this okay. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Robbie Feinberg. Vermont is one of a small handful of states with enough capacity to offer COVID-19 tests to people who don't have any symptoms. Vermont's goal is to test 1,000 people a day. So far, the state has offered tests for free at at least 10 temporary sites. On a recent weekend, Vermont Public Radio's Emily Corwin and her spouse went to a site in Colchester to get tested. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good, how are you? Good. I, I assume you're here for the COVID testing? Yes. yes we are. So I'm buckled into the passenger seat, and my wife Ella is driving. Maybe six men and women in National Guard uniforms direct our line of cars. We don't have symptoms, thank goodness. When the results come in, most likely tomorrow, we're planning to spend a little time with family members we haven't seen in a while. They're getting tested okay. today, too. Uh, did you pre register online? Yes. Okay, what, uh, for what time? Uh, 9.45. We had to sign up ahead of time. We filled out a form with basic information like birth dates and email addresses. No one asked us about health insurance, though. Not here and not on the form. This is on the state's dime. All right. What I'm going to ask you to do is move down lane three. It's the second of the two center lanes. Up ahead, about a dozen medics move between four dark green tents and cars. And they're completely covered in medical gear. We're talking shower caps, masks, face shields, gowns, gloves. They're even wearing booties over their feet. This is the first time I've actually seen and interacted with people in full PPE. You know, like I've seen these photos online. It's like those movies about alien abductions. Yes. Where you like wake up (laughs) and like everybody looks like that. Or those movies about pandemics. That's right. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Oh, there's somebody. We watch as a medic sticks a long, flexible probe up a woman's nose. Oh, that goes in real deep. Are you feeling um, nervous? A little bit. I am a total weenie. I hate being uncomfortable. But as we wait, I think about how much scarier this would be if we had symptoms or underlying conditions and we were worried about having COVID-19. Hi, my name's Tim. I'm going to be doing your testing today. I will let you know it is a little uncomfortable during and before, or after, sorry. Um, Would you like to still go ahead with the testing? Yes. Okay. So I'm just going to have you pull your mask down and tilt your head back and your nose up, and we'll go ahead with the testing. Oh. Ow. Okay. So that burning will go away after a little bit. Oh. It definitely (laughs) burns. Oh, boy. Worth going second. <laughs> I'll just have you put your head back and your nose up. Oh, <laughs> gross. 
You guys have a wonderful day. Great. Thanks, you too. Thank you. You're welcome. That made me tear up a little bit. Yeah. I only cried out of the one eye. Yes, me too. <laughs> it wasn't actually that bad. No, it's not that bad. It makes me want to sneeze. Yeah. <laughs> Bless you. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Emily Corwin. I checked back in with Emily to see if she was able to hug her family like she'd hoped. Unfortunately, she said it took longer than expected for her and her spouse to get their results, which came back negative. So they ended up opting for a socially distant outdoor hangout without hugs. We're going to take a quick break, but first we'd like to hear from you, our listeners. Now that restrictions are loosening, what are you looking forward to doing? At a safe distance, of course. Or do you plan to keep staying at home? Leave your comment at 860-275-7595. Again, that's 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. And thanks. When we come back, we'll stay in Vermont, where immigrant dairy farm workers are considered essential but are not getting any coronavirus aid. Plus, some real estate agents notice a surge in housing interest from out-of-state city dwellers looking to escape. It's Next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. Last week on the show, we heard how some local farms in New England are actually thriving during the pandemic, particularly CSAs, or community-supported agriculture. But Vermont's dairy industry is a different story. A sudden drop in milk prices due to COVID-19 has forced some farmers to scale back operations or close down altogether. And that has meant a loss of jobs, income, and even housing for immigrant workers that keep the state's dairy farms running. But as Vermont Public Radio's Peter Hirschfeld reports, they've been excluded from the state and federal aid programs created to help struggling workers. It's a little before six in the evening at a dairy farm in central Vermont. But before Uriel can begin his 12-hour night shift in the milking parlor, he needs to make a stop at an old wooden shed that now serves as a makeshift temperature check station. So this is, you come in here before every shift to get the temperature check? Uriel is among the estimated 1,000 to 1,500 immigrant farm workers on the front lines of Vermont's dairy industry, and so far at least, his job's been secure. But during a conversation inside the tiny cedar-shingled cottage he shares with a roommate, Uriel says other immigrant workers in the state haven't been so lucky. Yeah, I've heard from my cousins and my friends. In fact, a cousin called me and asked if there was any work here because the farm he was on had closed down, because they were dumping milk and the owner had decided he didn't want to keep farming. Y este, y pues el ya no quiso tener el rancho. 
More than 90,000 Vermonters have filed for unemployment since COVID-19 arrived in the state, and the state and federal government have taken extraordinary measures to replace their lost incomes. But workers like Uriel, because of their citizenship status, aren't eligible for the stimulus checks, unemployment payments, or pandemic unemployment assistance that have helped other newly jobless Vermonters stay afloat. And we've seen they've created a fund for the community, but unfortunately we've been excluded from that fund. And one of the things we're doing in our organization is fighting for that aid to come to us, too. That organization Uriel's referring to is called Migrant Justice. Will Lambeck is a spokesperson for the group. Workers who the country is admitting are, are necessary to keep our food chains going, to make sure that we have stock shelves in the supermarkets, uh, are being left out of government responses to this crisis. According to the Agency of Agriculture, seven Vermont dairy farms have ceased operations since March, and the agency knows of five migrant workers that have been displaced as a result. Migrant Justice is asking lawmakers and the Scott administration to cut $1,200 stimulus checks not only to immigrant farm workers, but any Vermonter who's been excluded from the program by virtue of citizenship status. That includes U.S. citizens who are married to or children of non-U.S. citizens. Lambeck says it's a matter of fairness. And also issue a clear statement of values that as our state responds to this unprecedented crisis, our response will include everyone. Some lawmakers say they want to ensure that it does. Addison County Senator Ruth Hardy says the Senate Agriculture Committee is trying to figure out a way to get $500 payments to every migrant farm worker in Vermont. It's not the $1,200 migrant justice is calling for, and it would only help farm workers, not the other Vermonters whose citizenship status has impeded their access to government aid. Hardy, though, says a projected shortfall in next year's general fund means resources are already stretched thin. I feel like it's at least, you know, a bit of a recognition, um, a bit of a sort of thank you for your work, and hopefully helps these farm workers to make ends meet and also support their own families, whether their families are here in Vermont or at, in their home countries. Federal regulations prohibit the state from using coronavirus relief funds to provide direct support to non-citizens. Last month, California became the first state to create an aid program for immigrant workers. They use nonprofits as fiscal intermediaries to funnel the money to workers. Hardy says her committee is considering a similar approach. So we're trying to be creative in how we can provide relief, provide some kind of benefit to, to these farm workers. And so We're still working out the details. Governor Phil Scott recently unveiled a $40 million aid package for struggling farms. It does not include any money for farm workers whose incomes have been affected by the downturn in the industry. Scott hasn't taken a position on the Senate legislation. At least one of his cabinet members, however, will be advocating on behalf of immigrant workers. Susana Davis is Scott's Director of Racial Equity. Speaking only for myself, As a person whose focus is racial equity, I think that a fund like that is really the least that we can do for a population that's so incredibly vulnerable and that is a part of our communities. It's up to the state to prove it when we say that these folks are, quote, essential. Thank you. <laughs> and you're Marisa? I'm Marita. Yeah. Marita. So, how are Olga. you doing? Good to meet you, Olga. Um,
Olga has been working and living on a dairy farm in the northern third of the state for the past two years. She says she's been fortunate to keep her job as a milker here, but she says friends at other farms are hurting. Some are leaving the state, which is problematic. Others are waiting to see if something is going to change, if they can find another job, just waiting to see if people are going to get any benefits or anything. Olga says many immigrant farm workers are making new lives in Vermont and that they serve important roles in an important industry. They may not be U.S. citizens, Olga says, but they are Vermonters. More than anything else, they need to recognize that we immigrants are a really important part of this country. I don't say this to offend anybody, but we're continuing to work in spite of everything that's happening. So what the government needs to do is to include us. If, for example, they create a benefit for people who are from here, Americans, they should include us too. Lawmakers and the governor will decide in the coming weeks what kind of consideration workers like Olga and Uriel deserve. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Peter Hirschfeld. Back in March, when the pandemic hit the Northeast, some New Yorkers, Bostonians, and other city dwellers fled their neighborhoods. They decided to socially distance themselves in vacation homes and rentals in places like Cape Cod, Western Connecticut, and Vermont. Now real estate agents are reporting that some of these visitors want to move for good. As Vermont Public Radio's John Dillon reports, the trend is spurred in part because many more people can work from home right now. To actually walk through a house you want to buy these days, you have to live here or self-quarantine for two weeks before you can physically check out the kitchen and the closets. So realtors are using videos like this. This modern country estate is set nicely upon 30 rolling acres in such a way that one can enjoy views of Mount Mansfield, a Zen garden with a reflecting pond, and lush meadows, all in a single vista. Outside... But even with the restrictions imposed to limit the spread of the coronavirus, real estate agents say they're showing more property to out-of-staters. A definite interest, yes. People are calling and asking if they can't just drive up for the day to look at real estate. Gail Oberg owns Little River Realty in Stowe. She says rules imposed under the state of emergency bar customers from making a day trip to shop for real estate. So she says some buyers have signed purchase contracts without seeing the property. Others who have already sheltered here for weeks or months in rental property or with friends have realized they can do their work remotely without moving back to the city. We're seeing people that want to come here and be in a safe environment, a healthy environment, and and then combining it now with the fact that they can work is going to you know, open up a lot of Vermont to, to people that may come here four days a week. Maybe they'll move here. You know, I'm wondering if the home in Vermont doesn't become their primary and their home in the metropolitan area might be downsized and become more of a second home. At Mad River Valley Real Estate, Broker Eric Reisner has also seen an uptick in business from those seeking corona safe zones. It's similar to the post 9-11 effect, I'll call it, you know, where we saw, you know, the number of students in our local schools rise post 9-11 due to families moving out of more metropolitan areas. Like Oberg and Stowe, Reisner says it's hard to quantify how much of his client's interest is due to COVID concerns. 
but he says he and other real estate agents in the Valley are getting a lot of calls from seasonal visitors to the resort community who now want to buy property and move here permanently. I guess I'm making an assumption that it's the pandemic, but it's that's probably the driving factor. It may have been a dream for quite some time, but then what makes you go from dreaming to you know, really looking to make the move? For example, when we spoke last week, Reisner was getting ready to give prospective buyers from Massachusetts a virtual online tour of a place in the Valley. They had decided to move to Vermont, and he says the choice was made easier by the new COVID reality of working from home. Whether you're working from home in a suburb of a major city or if you're working from home in Vermont, you know, as long as you have good Internet access, you can do it either way. New York City, Boston, um, Brooklyn, Washington, D.C., all on the first page. Stage Davis is the CEO of Four Seasons Sotheby's International Realty, which lists properties all over Vermont and New Hampshire. The firm uses software to track where the Internet searches for its listings come from. Davis shares the screen via Zoom and ticks down through the list. So you can see 757 unique visitors. Uh, Go down the page, there's Boston. Even before the virus hit, Davis says the residential real estate market was strong because of low interest rates and low inventory. Lower, mid, and, and a little above that price range, it's a very hot market if, it, if uh, the property is, is priced right. And we had, I want to say, on one property last week, a dozen offers on one, one, one house. And the COVID crisis has made Vermont even more attractive to people looking for a rural sanctuary. He says one buyer from Florida signed a seven-figure contract recently to buy a house and land in the Northeast Kingdom, sight unseen. He's never been there. Uh, and there, there are numerous examples of that. Davis also sees comparisons to the post-9-11 boom in Vermont real estate, with one exception. After 9-11, we didn't see a lot of people fleeing urban centers. We saw people fleeing New York as much as any place. Now, you know, it's it's clearly New York is in there, but, we're, you know, we're seeing L.A., we're seeing Boston. And he expects even more sales to out-of-state buyers once the state opens up more to visitors and agents can show customers around the property and not just give virtual tours via video of a Vermont home. That was Vermont Public Radio's John Dillon. You're listening to Next. At least 30,000 people are diagnosed with Lyme disease every year. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And New England is a hotspot for ticks carrying Lyme. This month, Taylor Quinby, host of New Hampshire Public Radio's podcast Patient Zero, brings us straightforward advice on tick-borne disease. Today, in the final installment of the series, diagnosing tick-borne disease during a coronavirus pandemic, and how COVID-19 may influence research and exposure to illnesses like Lyme disease. You may have heard that the symptoms of Lyme disease are all over the place. Joint pain, meningitis, facial paralysis. It's true that Lyme can present in a lot of different ways, and there are many possible symptoms if Lyme disease goes untreated. But early on, a lot of people with Lyme do experience something similar. Flu-like symptoms, a fever, aches and pains, and a funny rash that's sometimes colored like the bullseye of a dartboard. Sometimes 
but not always. It often doesn't look just like a bullseye. It could just be a reddened rash. It could be elongated. It doesn't have to be round. This is Eric Foster, a medical entomologist with the CDC. If you have any of those symptoms after a tick bite, Eric says, do not hesitate to pick up the phone. See your healthcare provider immediately. Of course, not everybody wants to see the doctor in person these days. And that's not necessarily a deal breaker. Tim Leahy is an infectious disease doctor at the University of Vermont Medical Center. A telemedicine visit could be a great way to get your initial evaluation for Lyme disease, and that may be all that you need. Hospitals and urgent care facilities all across the country have been ramping up efforts to conduct medicine via screens. And if you've got a bullseye rash that can be seen by a webcam and a history of exposure to ticks, that's enough clinical evidence for a Lyme disease diagnosis. The doctor can send a prescription for antibiotics to your local pharmacy, and you can start treatment. Of course... Lyme can do lots of things, though, and it can be a diagnostic puzzle. Many people who acquire a tick-borne disease don't ever remember being bitten by a black-legged tick. Eric Foster says that in the Northeast, where Lyme is endemic, summertime symptoms like fever, rash, and body aches could all be indicative of Lyme disease. Or, you know, it might not be Lyme. It could be another tick-borne disease such as anaplasmosis or ehrlichiosis or babesiosis. You know, there's, there's a lot of similarities in the early symptoms in these diseases, and it's just always best to kind of, you know, be cognizant of that and go see your healthcare provider or talk to your healthcare provider. The thing is, some of those symptoms are similar to another disease that's on all of our minds right now. Yes. Hello, uh, Taylor. Uh, my name is Paul Auerter. Dr. Paul Auerter is clinical director for infectious diseases at Johns Hopkins and former president of the Infectious Diseases Society of America. He says that one of the challenges doctors will have this summer is that people with a flu-like illness may think they have the coronavirus. Uh, people will be concerned that coronavirus is more frequent. So you, you go to the more frequent diagnosis first. This is very normal. There is one symptom, he says, aside from the bullseye rash, though, that can help distinguish between Lyme and COVID-19. Lyme disease uh, does a lot of things, but it does not affect uh, the lungs. You wouldn't have a cough. Nevertheless, both diseases can present in subtle ways. Both Dr. Leahy and Dr. Auerder agree that there's enough overlap. Some Lyme disease cases will likely get missed this summer in the rush to rule out coronavirus. Doctors and patients alike have COVID on the brain, and that's appropriate, and we should be doing testing for COVID in people who have a fever. The challenge is to make sure that we're all thinking farther down the list of possibilities. And with so many folks hiking local trails, starting gardens, and playing outside, tick-borne disease is a possibility. Maria Dukwasser is a disease ecologist at Columbia University. I think people will probably be more exposed, uh, but we don't know for sure. So that, that's something we want to study. Unfortunately, the coronavirus pandemic has delayed or halted research into tick and tick-borne illnesses, even at top institutions like Johns Hopkins, where Dr. Auerder works. My research has been suspended this spring, and you know, high time for <laughs> studying Lyme disease is typically April through July. And at Columbia University. So that's the worst scenario where there's more people sick and we don't know about it or we can't really measure it. Phase two trials for a Lyme vaccine are currently underway. But with FDA approval at least four or five years away, the best way to stay disease free is to stick with the basics. 
tuck your socks in your pants, put on the bug spray, and do the daily tick checks. Uh, you know, we should still enjoy the outdoors. So I really like people to go out, enjoy it, just do it safely, and, uh, and be aware. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Taylor Quimby. That was the final installment of the series called Tick Season. You can learn more about Lyme disease by listening to New Hampshire Public Radio's podcast, Patient Zero, wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, a birder helps revive a nearly decimated population of purple martins. And we meet a musician and veteran who's going back to college at the age of 83. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. We're back, and it's time to talk birds, specifically a species of migratory swallow known as purple martins. In the 1800s, purple martins lived all across southern New England. Then, in 1903, a severe cold wet spell decimated the population, and their numbers have never quite recovered. But over the last decade, a woman on Cape Cod has been working to bring these birds back. WCAI's Eve Zuckoff has the story. Hello, I'm here at one of my purple martin colonies in Mashpee, and I had just done a nest check. Every morning from April to August, Mary Kelleher puts her hair up in a ponytail and heads out to a Mashpee golf course where she uses a rope and pulley system to lower white plastic gourds from trees. Inside each is a nesting pair of birds. They're a little antsy today. They fly off, they circle around, fly, fly past the gourds a few times, and then they come back and land. Kelleher first got involved with Purple Martins in 2007 when she discovered a half dozen pairs breeding in an old, beaten-up birdhouse. Since then, she's almost single-handedly grown the local population of Purple Martins from those original six pairs to 96 pairs. Across different sites, these pairs hatched more than 200 chicks last year, nearly all of which left the nest safely. She's really sort of the mother of purple martins on Cape Cod. Now there's just hundreds of these things throughout the Upper Cape. That's Mark Faraday of Mass Audubon and WCAI's weekly bird report. Faraday says when he thinks of purple martins, a few things come to mind. Just gorgeous, gorgeous birds. They're incredible flyers. They're really powerful, strong flyers. These boisterous, dark-winged birds have feathers on their heads and bellies that have the iridescent sheen of an oil slick. They migrate from the Amazon to the northeast each spring, and they are fierce. Tigers of the sky. I just made that up. I don't think anyone's ever called them that. But they, <laughs> they're eating other predators of the sky. They're eat, they eat dragonflies, like big Big dragonflies. Finally, Faraday describes purple martins, at least in our part of the country, as deeply dependent. Across basically one entire half of the country, they no longer nest in natural situations. They only nest in houses and gourds. And that's it. They're not nesting in, you know, hollowed out trees and swamps anymore. And that's where Mary Kelleher a 51-year-old secretary for the Mashpee Public Works Department, comes in. You know, once I started saying that I think purple martins could be all over Cape Cod, there was some feedback from some longtime birders that didn't think that they could do well here. 
Some people were skeptical just because we have such cold, wet springs. After Kelleher started setting out gourds, she found it wasn't necessarily the cold that bothers Purple Martins. They can keep themselves warm as long as they have the right housing. It's the lack of food. As aerial insectivores, purple martins eat flying insects that sometimes don't come out in bad weather. So if we have weather that's rainy, windy, cold for several days, you know, four, five, six days, then that can be an issue. They're not getting enough food. There could be a die-off. So over the years, Kelleher and her teenage daughter, Ashley, have developed a supplemental feeding system for the birds. I purchased um, crickets. And I store them in my freezer, and if I have to do any type of supplemental feeding during bad weather, I can just defrost the crickets, go out, fling them up in the air to them, and they actually catch them and eat them. Kelleher doesn't know if these birds understand how devoted she is, coming out each day, even in the rain and wind. But she says they do seem to recognize her. They spot me, and they fly quite a distance over towards me, and I'll have this cloud of purple martins flying around me as I'm walking out towards the gourds. Now her success is undeniable. This year, Kelleher and Faraday expect to see colonies overflowing in Falmouth, Cumaquid, Wellfleet, and beyond. It was a if-you-build-it-they-will-come situation. And it just took somebody to take some initiative and put up some gourds, have some faith (laughs) that they will come. And the biggest reward for Kelleher will come in June, when the year's first eggs start hatching. On a cold spring morning, that's what keeps her going. The sun is warm. Um, I think they might be starting to come back in. You can probably hear them calling in the background. So I'll let you take a listen for a minute. Enjoy. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zukoff. Hank Bolden is 83 years old. He's also an undergraduate at the Hart School of Music in Connecticut. Bolden is what's called an atomic vet, one of thousands of soldiers exposed to secret nuclear weapons tests during the Cold War. Connecticut Public Radio's Diane Orson has the story of his remarkable journey. In 1955, Hank Bolden was in his late teens and stationed in California. One day, the young musician was told he'd been chosen to participate in a special military exercise. I had no idea what I was selected for. He was flown to Desert Rock, Nevada, where he joined hundreds of other soldiers from across the country. He didn't know anyone else there. A day later, they were marched out to trenches. In the trench that I was in, there was nothing but soldiers that looked like me, all, all black faces. A countdown began. When it got down to zero, that's when the big flash went off. That big flash was the dropping of the atomic bomb for the testing. And they had us placed 2.8 miles from ground zero, not only in the path of the fallout, but in the predicted path of the fallout. Then came a wave of heat and dust. And there weren't any goggles that, that we had to place over our eyes. just had a helmet. And our arms, supposedly, to protect your eyes, and you visibly see see your bones. And you visibly see uh, other folks' skeletons, you know, that's what I saw, yes. After the tests, Bolden and the other soldiers had to swear an oath of secrecy never to talk about what had happened, not to family, doctors, or to each other. Violation of the oath was punishable by 10 years in prison and a $10,000 fine. Bolden says for decades, he never talked. 
But as years went on, he was diagnosed with bladder cancer, multiple myeloma, and subcapsular cataracts. He began to worry that his health problems might be connected to what he'd seen. There were a lot of tests in this period. Alex Wellerstein is an historian of nuclear weapons at the Stevens Institute of Technology. He's speaking by Skype. These are really tests to see what happens to soldiers if they see a live nuclear weapon go off. Can they still be commanded? Do they become hysterical and no longer take orders? Do they become so overcome with fear that they can't do anything? At the same time, military commanders were not fully aware of the risks of exposing soldiers to ionizing radiation, says Wellerstein. Slowly, veterans who'd been unwittingly used as human research subjects began quietly sharing their stories. Congress lifted the oath of secrecy in 1996. Today, those who can demonstrate they're atomic veterans and have developed one of several specific medical conditions are eligible for compensation. Last year, after receiving his compensation, Hank Bolden decided to go back to college. When he got out of the Army back in the 50s, he'd enrolled at the Hart School of Music but never got a degree. I dropped out of college to go on the road playing music, and I like to complete what, I, what I've started. So the 83-year-old auditioned for renowned saxophonist Javon Jackson, director of Hart's Jazz Studies Division. It was apparent to me that he is a practitioner, I like to say, a musician who can do it. But he wants to come in and learn a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of music, which I think is um, something to be in awe of. Bolden was accepted and awarded a scholarship. He says he's come to terms with what happened decades ago when he was a young soldier. I have no regrets about being involuntarily volunteered because it actually has played a part in, into my being here now where I'm at. As for sitting in classes alongside students one quarter his age, Bolden says, well... Music will keep you young. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Diane Orson. And Connecticut Public produced a companion video to that radio story. We'll have a link to that at our website. That's nextnewengland.org. And that's a wrap this week. By the way, this was the 200th episode of Next. And I want to thank you so much for tuning in these past few years. We'll have more stories from New England coming next week. And in the meantime, you can find all 200 episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.